0: All right, friends, Well, we are going to jump right into it. Psalm 34, we are wrapping it up today. So we are, we are landing the plane on Psalm 34 today. We're beginning a brand new series next week uh, in the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited about that. Um, Can't wait to get into the Gospel of Mark with you. But today we're wrapping up Psalm 34. And so we're going to kind of hit the very end of this psalm. And Before we get into it, I just want to kind of remind us, catch us up. I I know if you've been tracking along with us, this is all old news to you. Um, And so you can check out for a minute, but make sure you check back in. Uh, For for those of you who are new, it's important to understand the context of this psalm, right? This, This is written by, we believe it's been attributed to, King David. But King David has been anointed as king by God. But, but the old king, King Saul, who has been removed by God, has not relinquished his throne. He says, I'm not going anywhere. Come and take it. Come and take it. I'm not going to leave my throne. And so his solution to the problem, Saul's solution to the problem, is to just find David and kill him. And so David is on the run for his life. He's hiding out and he's hiding from King Saul. And he's captured, but not by King Saul. Saul. He's captured by the Philistines. And if there's anybody who wants David dead as much as King Saul, it's the Philistine king. And so they bring David in before the Philistine king, and this is an absolute death sentence. There is no way, there's no way David makes it out alive. But David finds a way. In this kind of last ditch effort, David fakes insanity. As they bring him in, he just begins to drool all over his beard and grunt and scratch and tear his clothes. And he just go, p- pretends to be like this wild animal. And the Philistine king is like, Ugh! like this is not David. This is not the great warrior that embarrassed me in battle. This is not the one that killed Goliath and defeated our army. This is not David. This guy's crazy. Get him out of my throne. Get him out of my, this room. So they throw David out. And David runs and he flees to a cave where he hides And Psalm 34 is birthed out of this cave. David calls his family and friends, and they begin to worship together in this cave. This is where we believe Psalm 34 comes from. And so as we kind of land the plane today, we believe that this is the word of God. It's a gift from his hands, and it's so rich. There's so much in there for us. And so out of reverence, if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the word for us this morning? Psalm 34. I should have told you this already. There's a blue Bible underneath the seat you're sitting in, and Psalm 34 is on page 513. little late, little late. Psalm 34, page 513 in those blue Bibles. We're going to pick up in, um, in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned the Lord redeems the life of his servants not one of those who take refuge in him will be condemned this is the word of the Lord and you guys can have a seat all right. So, so far in this psalm, right, David has, has walked us through so many kind of, kind of complex things. He begins with praise. We talked about this uh, three weeks, four weeks ago right now. We talked about, he, talked, he begins with praise. He calls us to be a people who magnify the Lord. Oh, Come magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. Let's be a people who have his praise constantly on our lips. He's worthy of praise all the time. Then he calls us to be a people of prayer. We must be people of prayer because God is a God who responds and answers prayer as He's answered David's prayer. And then He calls us to be people of fear. We talked about this last week a right and healthy fear of the Lord. Right, at the beginning of all wisdom. That is where we want to be, and that's where we want to live. It's a place where we, where we view God as greater and above all other things. God is supreme, and He's supremely worthy to be feared. Not in an in a, I'm afraid of you way, but in, in a way where I stand in awe and reverence to your power and your might. And now, David's going to move into Suffering. Suffering. You see, in this moment, in this cave, I believe that God has gotten to work on David's heart. And he has changed David's view of suffering. He's transformed David's view of suffering. And so many of us struggle with the idea of suffering. This is not a happy topic. It's not an easy topic. It's such a misunderstood teaching in the church. We have so many questions about suffering and about God and suffering. How could God allow suffering? And while today we're not going to answer every question, we would need much more time for that. My hope is that through this text, we might grow, that we would be a people who grow in our theology of suffering. That you and I today, as we open this text, and as we look at it together, that we'd grow in our theology of suffering. And that those who are in a season of suffering, those in the room who are in a season of suffering, who are living with a crushed spirit, that you might be strengthened through David's words. Now, it's important to know that God does not magically erase David's suffering. And we don't, I want to state this right out of the gate. Right, David talks about his suffering. He talks about kind of the beauty of God and his suffering. But like, David is, David's suffering has not been magically erased. David is still in a cave running from, for, for his life. I know there are people in this room that are suffering, but this is real suffering. I mean, he is hiding out, running from an army of men who want to kill him. That has not changed for David. His suffering has not been magically erased. But in this cave, God has changed his view of suffering. God has shown David that there is good news in our sorrow. There is good news. In our sorrow. For those who are in Christ, for those who love Jesus, there is good news in our sorrow. And that's what I hope you'll see today. Before we begin, I know, I realize, I understand that there are people in this room who have no idea what it actually means to suffer. And I'm not making fun of you, I'm not ripping on you, but the reality is you just don't, right? Yes, you've lost loved ones, maybe you've lost your grandma, or your grandpa, your dogs died, you've, you've suffered, you've had times of sorrow and mourning, you've, you've cut your finger, you've experienced pain, maybe you broke a bone at one point in time. Like you've, You know suffering, you know what it is conceptually, but you have no idea what it really means to suffer. And there are other people in this room who have endured so much, but they don't know if they can endure anymore. They've lost their children, their babies. Friends have gotten cancer far too young. They've fought in wars and they've seen things that would, that would ruin lesser men and lesser women. They, they have endured things that we cannot begin to imagine. And I know that this sermon's like these on suffering, right? It doesn't matter how heavy it gets or, or not. For you, it will trigger things that are heavy, that are weighty, that are, that, are, that are more than it will for many of us in the room. And so before we begin, I, just, I want to like to pray for you specifically, if I can. Before we get into this, I just, want to, I just want to pray for you and pray for your heart and for your mind as we wade into this. And so would you guys bow your heads with me? Just bow your heads with me for a moment. Close your eyes. And if that's true of you, if if you're one that would say, yes, for me, for me, in this season of my life, my life is blowing up, and I don't know if I can endure another day. For me, I've seen things that most people should never see in their life. And I've suffered in ways that most people will never understand. Would you just just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. I just want to pray for you. All right, let me pray for you. Jesus, for for my friends in the room who right now, in this moment, are going through the dark hour of the soul, who feel alone and helpless, deserted and abandoned, would you this morning, would you awaken them to your presence? Would they know that you are a near and present help? For those who have memories of the past, moments where where they have seen sorrow and seen pain and endured things that, that no one should should ever have to deal with or endure. For those tapes that are on re, replay this morning or being replayed in their mind, would you fill them with your mercy? Would they taste and see that the Lord is good? Would you draw them near to yourself? Be kind to them. And through your word, would you strengthen them? Would you give them boldness and courage through the power of your Holy Spirit, the resurrection of your Son, the placing in his name in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. All right, friends. Let's go. We're going to see three things this morning. All right. From this text, we're going to see three things. And the three things we're going to see from the text are followers of Jesus will have great sorrow. You're not going to escape that, okay? Followers of Jesus will have great sorrow. Second thing we're going to see is that in suffering, followers of Jesus gain a greater view of God. Our our view of God is expanded in our suffering. When we suffer, we see God more clearly and we learn more about God. Then we could in any other way, in suffering followers of Jesus, this is the last one, in suffering followers of Jesus, become more like Jesus. We're transformed in our suffering. So now, number one, followers of Jesus will have great sorrow. Followers of Jesus will have great sorrow. This is an an unavoidable truth. You see, in this Psalm, Psalm 34, and this section of Psalm 34, 15 through 22, right, the focal point, the focal verse is verse 19, Everything is flowing into and out of verse 19. It is, for the nerds in the room, it's a chiastic structure. For those of you who are like, oh, chiastic, uh," right? It's a chiastic structure, right? And everything is flowing into and out of verse 19. And in fact, it's the turning point of the verse. It's this moment in the verse where everything before verse 19 is they, the righteous, them, those. It's all about you and me. And then in verse 19, it shifts. The first part of the verse is about us. The second part of the verse turns to singular him. And the next few verses are all him, him, him. It's a messianic prophecy that comes out of this verse. It's a turning point in the passage. Verse 19 reads this way. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's followers of Jesus, the people of God. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. In this text, the righteous, if you look at the first few verses 15, 16, 17, 18, the the, the righteous are the ones who are crying. The righteous are the ones who are weeping. The righteous are the ones who are enduring sorrow and suffering and pain. David is talking about the pain of the righteous, and many are the afflictions of the righteous. We want to believe that the good never actually suffer, right? The good guys always win in the movies, those are the movies that we love. The good guys always win. We want to believe that the good never suffer. We want to believe that there's a way that for me and for you that there's a way for us to 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 to, to figure out a secret formula or a way, there's a book that we can read or uh, actions that we can do that are going to free us from suffering. And we actually, in our minds, like we view life that way. We view life as saying, there is a way, there's a, there's, a, there's a formula, and if you could figure it out, if you could live it, if you could live according to this self-help book or this guru's uh, way of life, you'd be free from suffering. We want to believe that that's true, but everyone knows this isn't true, there's something in us that says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. We know that this that our life is broken, it's flawed, it's marred, it's not the way it's supposed to be. There must be a way to be freed from this. But there's also something in us that knows there is no human who has ever lived a life free from suffering. There is no secret formula. There is no job. There is no amount of money. There is no possession. There is no person. There's no one that can free us. It's not out there. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so David does not say, be righteous and you will be free from suffering. This is also a lie that we believe, that if if we just do all of the right things, we follow all of the right rules, Right? We just live according to what we're supposed to do. If we, if we become worthy, then we will have more. We'll be freed from the, the stressors of this world. We'll have a bigger house and a bigger, better car and a, and a better career and all these things. If we just do the right things. And the flip side of that coin is also equally untrue. And this is all over our culture, even here in Utah, that those who have those things, those who have more, those who have more money, those who have a better house, those who have a better family, whatever that looks like to you, they're the ones who are righteous. They're the ones who have done the right things. They're the ones who have, who have, who have somehow pleased God more than you and I. David is saying, that's not true. And many are the afflictions... Of the righteous. In fact, the whole Bible says that's not true. It's not true. This idea that the righteous will not suffer, or those who are not suffering are somehow righteous. That's not true. Jesus says that's not true. He's opposed to this idea. In John sixteen thirty-three, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. That's where it comes from, not from the world. But then he goes on to say, in the world you will have peace. Tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying to his closest followers, his disciples, that your life in this world will be marked by tribulation. There's no way out of it. There's no way out of it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous followers of Jesus will suffer. Acts takes it even a step further. Further than that, it says, man, this is necessary in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you want to enter the kingdom of God, suffering is necessary. In Acts 14, 21 and 22, it says this, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, right? They're strengthened. They're encouraged. This is good. But then look what it says next. In saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Through many tribulations. Through many tribulations. It's going to cost us. It's going to be a life marked of sorrow and pain for those who enter the kingdom. Followers of Jesus will suffer sorrow Paul tells the Thessalonians that they're destined for this. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2-13, Paul says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. If you think or someone's told you you've bought into this idea This lie that is sold all the time that those who give enough money, those who read the Bibles enough, those who attend church enough, those who serve enough will be freed from afflictions. This is not true. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, we are the ones who are destined for it. We're destined for afflictions. Christians, more than any other human being, should know and should have a right view of suffering and should be those who embrace it Because we know that God is at work in our suffering. But there is a way to embrace it and to find joy in it. And you will be delivered from it. There is a way to embrace suffering as a Christian and a way to find joy in suffering. And we will be a people who are delivered from it. Now, some of you in the room, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but you'd still say, wait a second, whoa, whoa, So you're telling me that last week, we talked about the fear of the Lord, right? That God is the most powerful, the most supreme, the most glorious, the, the most awe-inspiring one, who can do anything. He's sovereign over all things. You're telling me that, that God is going to allow His people to suffer He's going to allow the righteous to suffer. He's going to even cause and bring about suffering in his people. How how can you possibly believe that? That God would sit idly by as his people suffer? How could you believe that? But I want to show you the text because that is the opposite of what David is actually saying. David is actually saying the opposite of that idea. Yes. The righteous will suffer. Those in Christ will suffer. But God is not an idle God in our suffering. God is an active God. In fact, He's a very, very active God. This is exactly what David is getting at. And This brings us to the second point. In suffering, followers of Jesus gain a greater view of God, a greater understanding of God. We know God in the midst of our suffering. I want you to look at the verse, verses in, in, in Psalm 34, in your Bible, Verse 15, 16, 17, and 18. I'm going to read them for you in a minute. But I want you to look at what God does in these verses and tell me if he's idle in our suffering. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Is God idle in the suffering of his people? Not a true question. I know somebody in the room other than Randy knows. Is God idle in the suffering of his people? No! In fact, it's the opposite of it. The entire text is about the activity of God in the suffering of his people. All that God is doing in the suffering of his people. Yes, he doesn't magically remove David's suffering, but David's eyes are awakened, is open to God's activity in the midst of his suffering. God is radically moving in the midst of our suffering in Christian suffering, right? Our, we, are, we see that God's, God's eyes are on those who are suffering. His eyes are on those. He's, he's peering into the sorrow of his followers. He's peering into the sorrows of those who, who love Jesus. His ears are towards those who are suffering. He hears the cries of the saints. He hears the cries of followers of Jesus. He's listening to our suffering And when he sees and when he hears, he delivers us. He moves near. He he comes close to those who are suffering in Christ to deliver us out of that suffering. God is constantly moving. I want to show you one way that our eyes are open to God in the midst of our suffering. There's one thing where there's so many. Right? We could be here all day long. We could do a whole series on the ways that God is opening our eyes to him in the midst of our suffering. But I want to show you one one, when you look at suffering on a grand scale, I, I don't mean like my one individual suffering, like I hit my, my, my thumb with a hammer, right, and it's causing pain. I, I mean on a grand scale, all suffering. Y- yes, when I hit my thumb with a hammer, but, but all suffering, every suffering that has ever occurred by any human being ever in the history of the world, all suffering, we know, we believe as followers of Jesus, all suffering stems from our sin, the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is the beginning of, of, this, of the curse of sin and death. It's the, it's the beginning of suffering. It's written into the curse. We were not meant to suffer. We know that we were not meant for this. We know there's got to be a way out. It's written into the curse. It's all a result of our sin. Every moment that we try to usurp God's authority and, and, and build our own kingdoms and reject his kingdom, it results in sin and all suffering is a result of human sin. Cancer, disease, famine, war, it's all a result of human sin. And much suffering is is a direct result of my sin, right? When when I'm in a relational disagreement, whether it be with my spouse or my kids or a friend, it's often a result of sin, either theirs or mine, often mine. War is a result of our sin. Wars don't exist because we love each other, because we're acting like Jesus. It was a result of sin, Brokenness, our own brokenness is bringing about our suffering. And this is fascinating. The text is saying that even though we have brought every ounce of this on ourselves, the, in his grace, God still hears our cry. God still looks upon us and draws near to us. He still delivers us out of our suffering. This is nuts. It's crazy. It's opening your eyes to something deeper about God. Suffering is, if we allow it to. Suffering is opening your eyes to something deeper about God. I have two little boys, Winston and Haddon. You've heard me talk about them a lot. You know that they are boys, all right? They, they love They love adventure. They love trouble. They love wrestling. They love fighting. They love crazy stuff. And the truth is, is that I'm a dad that lets them get away with a lot of things that most parents probably wouldn't let them do, right? Things that are a little unsafe. And the truth is, I'm going to throw it under the bus, Desiree is the same way. Like we let our boys kind of do some things that maybe, maybe are a little unsafe. Like yesterday we let our 4-year-old swing on this rope swing and everybody around is like wait you're letting your 4-year-old do what is wrong with you like you what is what is happening and we're, all the time we're letting them do things that are a little risky like a little dangerous but it's good for them they're boys like they're, they're supposed to do these things so you would think you would think that when dad says that's a bad idea that that would be like an extra weight they would be like, oh, wow, if dad thinks it's a bad idea, it's a really bad idea. But they don't. They don't. They never do. They never do. They just continue. Anyways, I'm like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. That's going to that's gonna burn you. That's going to hurt you. That's going to cut you. You're going to fall. This is going to end badly. Like, so you, need to, you need to stop. And they never listen. They never listen. And inevitably, it ends in screaming tears and, and broken something and, and blood or, or whatever it is. They're burnt. It's like this disaster, okay? It ends in disaster. And what do I do in that moment? Do I scream out, "What are you doing? Like, all right, you know, forget it. You got yourself into this. I'm out. I'm I'm leaving. I'm not. You figure it out on your own." Of course not. Of course not. I hear their cries. My ears are turned towards them. My eyes are fixed on them. I see their pain and I see their sorrow, and I move towards them. I come fast as I can. Comfort them. I know the cry, the cry that means I need to go, right? And that's different than the cry that means I'll figure it out. No, I know the cry. It's like it's time to it's time to move towards them and to figure out a way to deliver them from this. And so I move towards them and I quickly assess the situation I figure out, man, what do I need to do to comfort them? Do I just need to hold them? Well, let them cry. Do they need some ice? Do they, need, do, they need, do they need me to clean off the dirt? Do they need me to pick up the finger and put in a bag full of ice and take them to the ER? Like, what, what, do, they, what do they need? That's never happened. Please give me a break. Don't call DCFS. That's my, that happened to me. That's my story. Um, sorry, Mom. Ratted you out there. No, th- no, I, I move and I comfort them. I care for them in that moment. Why? Because I love them. They're my boys. And so in our sorrow, in our suffering, if we allow it to, it opens our eyes to the love of God towards us, even though we're the morons that don't deserve it. We're the ones who have got ourselves in this mess because we've disobeyed him. Suffering opens our eyes to to the love for God in a way that nothing else can. Every time we experience suffering, We have an opportunity to embrace the grace of God. God is not idle in our suffering, but rather he is very, very active. And even though it is all our fault, it's all a result of our sin, he's still moving towards us in love. So for my friends in the room who love Jesus, but are in a season of crying out, in need of help, lost in trouble, brokenhearted or crushed in spirit, Are you seeking Him? Are you allowing suffering to transform your view of God, or are you suppressing it? Are you crying out to Him? Are you looking to the infinite, all powerful God who can fully grasp your sorrow? You must realize this. Yes, He is fully infinite and all powerful, but He can still understand your sorrow. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be weak. He knows what it means to feel intense pain. He knows what it means to be broken down. He knows what it means to feel hopeless and helpless because he experienced it all on the cross. He experienced it all as a human being. He knows what it means to suffer. To have sorrow and mourning and loss and pain. He knows. And so not only do we have an infinite God who loves us infinitely, even in the midst of our sin, we have a God who can identify us in the midst of our sorrow and pain. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 puts it this way. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, since we have this, since we have Jesus, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, when we allow it to, suffering opens our eyes to God. And when our eyes are open to Him, we run to Him in our suffering. When we run or stand, when we allow suffering, we see so often we want to suppress suffering. We want to shove it down. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk to anybody about it. We just want to numb the pain. And so we bury ourselves in our work. We bury ourselves in alcohol. We bury ourselves in binge-watching Netflix. We just don't want to think about it. And so suppress it, suppress it, suppress it, suppress it. But when we take it before God, when we allow it to, it opens our eyes to His love for us. And as our eyes are open to His love for us, we move towards Him. And as we move towards Him, our eyes are open even more to His love for us. And we move towards Him even more. Like only suffering, only suffering can awaken you to this. So there's much good in the midst of our suffering. He has identified with us in our suffering that we might enjoy his glory, that we might draw near to him. But not just someday, out there in the distance in the future, someday when we die, there'll be the end of suffering. Not just out there in the distance. Every single day we are invited to die and rise with Christ. My great hero, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, was a pastor in Nazi Germany, his, 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 his most famous quote, right, Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Bonhoeffer's not talking about a literal death. Y- yes, maybe. Yes, Bonhoeffer did die a literal death. He died in a Nazi concentration camp because he loved Jesus. But he's not talking about a literal death. He's talking about every day, every moment, when Christ calls you out of spiritual darkness, and into spiritual light, he's calling you to come and die. Every day, he's inviting you into suffering. And that's a foreign idea for so many of us, but it's a beautiful idea. And it leads us to our final point. In suffering, followers of Jesus become more like Jesus. I want you to look at the very last verse of Psalm 34, verse 22. That love, verse 22, says this. The Lord redeems the life. Let me say that again. Look at it. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Right? The Lord redeems the life of his of his servants, All right? So, the whole text, this whole thing is couched in this suffering. Suffering, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. God is attuned to your suffering. God's eyes are open to your suffering. God's ears are uh, open to your suffering. He's moving towards your suffering. He's near and present help in the midst of your suffering, right? And the Lord redeems the life. So often, we think, kind of, kind of out there someday when we die, like right, that'll be the end of suffering, and that's true. That's absolutely true. There is a time coming when there will be no more mourning. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more loss. There will be no more violence. There will be no more hurt. There will be no more pain. That day is coming for every follower of Jesus. They will not be condemned. I'm not condemned in my suffering. I'll be freed from it eternally. But the first part of the verse... Says the Lord redeems the life of His servants today. This moment can be redeemed through our suffering. Our suffering can be redeemed. How does this work? What does it look like for God to redeem our suffering today, right now? Paul talks about this idea in Philippians. Three, Paul sets this up, he talks about um, some of you already who you, you love your Bibles, already know where this is going. but he sets this up by talking about men, all the things that he's accomplished, all these great accolades, all these things that people look at him, all the boasts, the things that he could boast in. And then he says this in verse eight, he says, "Indeed, I count everything, all of it as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for His sake." I have suffered the loss of all things. All that stuff, I've suffered the loss of all of it for him. Not counting them as, as sorry, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but of that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, Real quick, this whole text in Psalm 34, this text for today, is talking about who who is it that God, whose cries does God hear? The righteous. His eyes are on the righteous. He's moving towards, he's near the righteous. He's, he's He's going to save and defend the righteous. How do we gain righteousness? By doing all the right things, by being good people. Helping people across the street, serving, giving away money. Is righteousness found in those things? No. Paul understands this. Paul says, I don't want a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the righteousness I want. This righteousness that can only come through Christ. This righteousness that is imputed to us on the cross of Christ. On the cross of Christ, my sin is imputed to Christ. It becomes his sin. Not that Christ ever sinned, but my sin becomes his sin. And it's nailed to the cross. And in that act, his righteousness becomes my righteousness. I'm grafted into his righteousness. I now have the righteousness of Christ. Not my own righteousness. His righteousness. And therefore, I can be the subject of Psalm 34. You can be the subject of Psalm 34, the righteous, because of the work of Christ. Otherwise, you're hopeless. We need the righteousness of Christ to be the ones who are redeemed in our suffering. Now, verse 10. Why all of this? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection that I may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Resurrection, suffering, death. Resurrection, suffering, death. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, become like him in his death. Resurrection, suffering, death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the Christian life is all about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him every day in his death and in his resurrection. Every single day. You want to know how your life is redeemed? It's through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus every day single day. God redeemed eternity, yes, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is going to redeem your life every day as you learn to suffer, die, and rise with Christ every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. We must learn to suffer and die and rise with Christ every single day by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every moment of suffering is a moment to die with Christ and move towards him. And this is how our moments are redeemed. Uh, There was a book that was written uh, not too long ago called J-Curve. And we actually have a few copies, I think, unless they were all sold out, uh, at the end of our last gathering, but from the, from the parenting conference uh, a couple weeks ago, we have still some leftover books that, were, that are in the hub, and you can, you can pick them up. Actually, there's a number of books. There's a book by Paul Tripp on suffering. There's a book on anxiety and depression out there. Um, but specifically, there's a book called J-Curve. And J-Curve is all about this idea of living a redeemed life through suffering, when God redeems our suffering, redeems us through our suffering, redeems our days and our moments through our suffering. As we die with Christ, we suffer with Christ and we die with Christ. But then we we're also raised with Christ and redeemed. This idea of the J, right? We, we are suffering and dying. We die to ourselves and then we rise with Christ all day, every day. We have, there's moments and opportunities for this to happen, right? What does this look like? Think about it for a moment, right? The person at work or a family member or a spouse, uh, one of your kids, is just railing against you, saying all kinds of mean and hurtful things to you, right? You're in this moment where you are just being ravaged verbally by a person and they're saying all kinds of hurtful and unfair things, right? And the world says, in that moment, the world says what you should do, the way you solve that is by silencing them. Who do you think you are to speak to me that way? What gives you the right to talk to me that You know what? Let me show you some of your own flaws. And just, just let them have it. But the way of Christ, as a lamb led to slaughter, doesn't open his mouth. Doesn't open his mouth. And so as we learn to suffer with Christ and to kill our pride, kill our need to be heard and our need to be right, as we die with Christ, as we suffer with Christ, and we die to ourselves, in that moment, and only in that moment, can we actually live a redeemed life. You see, what does that person see when you scream back? Do they see the gospel? Do they see it on display? Do they see the love of God? Their eyes open to the love of God. Is Is that happening? Is their heart now at peace? No, it's impossible. Because you've met sin with sin. You never, it doesn't work. Are you experiencing those things? Have you, do you have peace now? Right? We think, oh yeah, I'm going to put them in their place and then that's going to make me feel better, but it never does. We know it doesn't, doesn't work that way. It never works that way. Are you experiencing the gospel? Are you experiencing the love of Christ? Do you realize that his eyes are on you, his ears are towards you, he's moving, he's present with you? No, you don't experience any of those things. But when you suffer, as Christ suffered and you died yourself in that moment, your eyes are open and awakened. That The God of all things, his eyes are on you. His ears are towards you. His presence is with you. And he's going to deliver you. He's going to help you out of that moment. You are going to rise. Your life, that moment of your life, is going to be redeemed. It's going to be redeemed in that moment. Because in that moment, when we are silent, when we, when we live as Christ lived, that person is experiencing the gospel. Whether they realize it in that moment or not, that person is experiencing the love of Christ. They're experiencing the love of God. And we are finding, we're finding the peace of the Lord in the middle of our suffering as we embody Jesus, as we become like Him. Now, does this mean that suffering's over and we're magically freed from all suffering? No. But we are embracing it and finding joy in it because we're becoming more like Jesus in it. I want to read you and leave you with a quote from J-Curve. It reads this way. So we still hurt. We still grieve. But now our temporary dying isn't just little old me on my own. I'm caught up into reenacting the most magnificent story ever told, the gospel. I'm not just believing the gospel. I'm becoming like the gospel. You see, there's good news. There's good news in our sorrow. We can embody the gospel only through suffering. There's good news in our sorrow. You will suffer Every follower of Jesus is destined for suffering many afflictions. Many afflictions. But in those afflictions, if you allow it, those afflictions will transform your mind. It'll show you the love of our God. And if you learn to suffer with Christ and become like him in your afflictions, to suffer with him and die with him, and to be redeemed and rise with him every day again and again and again by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will find good news In our sorrow, and you will find a redeemed life. And friends, this only comes, it only comes, through suffering. You can't find it any other way. There's no other way to find it. We must be a people who identify with Christ and his sufferings by being a people who suffer ourselves. And so let us, let us suffer well. Let's pray. I want us to be a people who today, 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 you will suffer today. It might be something small, it might be, it might be something silly, but today you'll suffer. Maybe you drop something on your toe. Maybe somebody says something harsh towards you on online. Maybe your kids just give you a run for your money. Maybe you and your spouse get into it later. You're going to suffer today. I don't want you to forget where you are in that moment. I want you to be lost or confused. I want you to understand that you are, you are in that moment, dying suffering and dying with Christ again. And you have an opportunity in that moment to embody the gospel. And so Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you open our eyes to see that we cannot do this without you. We We are a sinful people who are going to bring pain and suffering on ourselves again and again and again and again and again. Unless you move in us. We're desperate for you. Every hour of every day we need you to open our eyes to show us how suffering helps us see the love of God towards us. Helps us draw near to God. Helps us become more like Jesus. Helps us live redeemed lives. And so would you you show us, would you show us the good news in the midst of our sorrow today? And help us live as Jesus. Help us live redeemed lives. I pray these things in his name, in the name of Jesus, amen.